If you've got a Bible, could you please turn to Psalm 46? To the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, a song. So according to him or her, it's a song. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in her midst and she shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He's, he utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord. How he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth and he breaks the bow and shatters the spear and he burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted amongst the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Uh, before I uh, speak, uh, if I may just uh, 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 take a little bit of your time, uh, I'd like to um, personally speak uh, this morning on the internet to Margaret Harmon. Uh, Margaret Harmon uh, listens to our um, sermons, and apparently if they are not on there by the afternoon, actually rings a son to complain. And so they're not there. And she's been listening to my sermons. And we've been communicating uh, for a little while via Facebook. And we, are, we have a developing relationship, which is a little bit disturbing to the two husbands uh, involved. And, but as a thank you uh, to preaching my sermons, she sent me a gift. So I thought I'd like to show it to you. This is my gift, because apparently she thinks that I mentioned Time Team too often, so she's bought me the book. So, Margaret, I'd like to thank you ever so much for the Time Team book, and I would also like to suggest to the other 70-odd people sitting out here that you've never bought me anything. <laughs> and I, I will accept things like, so a prayer now is £4.50, a sermon is £10, uh, and, you know, a word of scripture. Anybody that got me to read their scripture over them this morning, that was £2.50, you owe me. And now I can understand why people actually join the prosperity movement. <laughs> so if you'd like to add to our financial, uh, please feel free. But thank you ever so much, Margaret. I'll wait in anticipation for my next gift. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, <laughs> It's the first one I've ever had for preaching lessons. Uh, we've been working through uh, the book of Psalms and we're going to take a break after today uh, to look at 1 Peter. And then what we're going to do is return to the book of Psalms a little bit later. I have to say that I have thoroughly enjoyed the preparation part of it. Uh, I'm sad that we've not done more of the Psalms. I've looked at them and thought, why did we miss that one out? I've enjoyed the listening of them uh, and being there as other people have preached. And actually, I mean, for me, I've found that God has spoken to me profoundly through them uh, again. And now from you and me, we have to decide what we're going to do with what God has said. And uh, last week, in my absence, um, I believe that you all went out for coffee. And uh, you should have had a messianic royal wedding uh, psalm, uh, hopefully that you would have uh, found out how much God delights uh, both in his people, his church and in marriage. Uh, if you didn't get that, uh, please speak to me and uh, we'll sack the preacher. Uh, 
<coughs> today, uh, to get us back on track, we're in trouble again. I always get the, the Psalms that are always about trouble. Uh, and according to verse 1, uh, we are in trouble, uh, but it's a trouble in which we can know God's support for us. We are designed, we are made to know divine support in the midst of difficult times. So what I've done to try and make it easy is I've divided uh, the passage up into three. I haven't done that, actually. Uh, Theologians before me have done that. So in verses uh, 1 to 3, you'll meet the first scene, a picture of God's power over nature, a cataclysmic earthquake where the world is unmade and shaken. And God's power over nature is displayed in that scene. The second scene in the psalm is from verse 4 to 7. It's a picture of a city engulfed by a massive siege, a numerable horde of enemies surrounding it. And again, uh, it's God's power over the attackers of this city. The third scene, verses 8 to 11, is a battlefield after the battle is over. And there are bodies of the enemies strewn all over the place. Uh, It's an aftermath. But it's where God has vanquished his enemies. And it's about God's triumph and God's victory. So I want to try and take them uh, scene by scene. Verses 1 to 3 then. Verses 1 to 3 are the picture of the challenges facing God in this fallen world. We have a picture there of a cataclysmic earthquake in which the whole world is unmade. The stable mountains, the things that we think are stable, have fallen into the sea and the chaotic seas are swirling and foaming and covering the earth. Not different to any of the uh, natural disasters that we see in a year on our television screens. Some of these things that we're reading here are not only in the psalmist because he's inventing them, because actually he would have known them. He would have seen them just like you and I, perhaps in his locality, maybe. But here we've, we know them now because of the, uh, the availability of news to us. So these pictures are not unfamiliar to us. It's a picture of Genesis 1 reversed, where all the distinctions between land and sea that have been established are suddenly undone. And it's a picture that challenges the people of God. What do we do? How do we react when these things just uh, sweep over us as the people of God? And by showing us this picture, the psalmist is trying to remind us of God's power, that God's power is greater and he actually has an ability to protect us against anything. And he reminds us of that uh, protection and by telling us that we are safe and that we can be safe in the midst of the upheaval of, of nature itself. And his point is this. God can be trusted when the world goes crazy. God can be trusted when the world goes crazy. That's the point. We need to get that into our mind because sometimes we see these things and we think, well, where's God in this? And what the psalmist is saying, even if this is true, God can be still found in these things. And he begins by pointing to a God who is our refuge, a strength, an ever-present help in trouble. By the way, this is a classic example of praying the attributes of God in a way that stirs faith and helps us with with the reality of our present circumstances. If your times are difficult, can I suggest that you use this to pray into your circumstances? You know, we tend to read present circumstances, especially when they're traumatic, traumatic, as the final word of reality. It's just, this is awful. How am I going to get over this? This is just 
beyond anything that I've experienced before. And the trouble is that the circumstances become our reality. We talk to people about them. We Google to find out whether anybody else is going through them. We, we do all sorts of things. We read books on them. We give people books about them so that they might know what we are going through. It becomes our reality. But actually, it is not the reality. That's the interesting one. Because, uh, because behind them and under them and around them is always a greater reality for the Christian. A larger reality. And as we pray back to God who he is and what he's like and what he's done and what he's promised in the future and how his mercy has extended towards us, our faith is moved to believe in a reality that will transcend our circumstances. Who is bigger? Who is wiser? Who is greater? Who is mightier? Those are the things are the reality These things are the minor reality. And the psalmist points us to three realities about God in the first verse. The first thing is this. God is our refuge. This is a word that speaks of God making us secure by defending us. He will defend us. He will shelter us. But I want you to notice this. This beautiful expression that comes up so many times pastorally is actually that he, it's not he that provides a refuge. It's not even he that gives us a refuge. Our refuge is in a delight in him alone. It's him. We take refuge in him. We worship him him we adore him we love him we get wrapped up in him and it's interesting isn't it because what people fail to see is that if you're going through difficult circumstances you talk about them and here the psalmist is saying talk about god find god don't find god to provide you for something to give you something so that you can have like this shopping list lord i need this if if this person was changed and and that hadn't happened don't do that just go to god god is your refuge and it speaks that there's a security that we can gain not when we ask him to provide something for us, but the security that comes when we come to love him and worship him and adore him and make him our focus. That the product of that is the refuge. That's the wonderful thing. But the psalmist goes on almost in the same vein. God is our refuge and he also is our strength. Now this could point to God as the source of an inner strength and courage. But I want to suggest that that's not true. It means more. That this means that God is the one who is strong when we are weak. Why do we need to know that? Because if you look at verses 2 and 3, earthquakes and tsunamis, if you like, there, it frankly doesn't matter how strong you are in those. It You are not stronger than an earthquake or a a tsunami. You're just not, are you? Come on, be honest with yourself for once. No, you're not. So the answer is that if you're going to get through those things, you need somebody that is much stronger than you. Somebody that is infinitely stronger and able to take care of you. So the the reminder of this is that I have someone stronger. I have someone that's stronger. He's our refuge. He's our strength. He's strong for us when we are weak. So our resource is, not in, is in him itself. And an understanding that even though these things, I have one bigger than these things, stronger than these things. He's thirdly, a very present help. He is, as the commentators say about this verse, he is very, very near. Very near. The psalmist is saying that in the time of trouble, the prayer should be, be near. Be near us. I need to 
know your presence. I need to feel your presence. I need to experience your presence. It needs to be something that I know, not just an understanding. We know that God is omnipresent. And nobody is denying the omnipresence of God. Nobody's, he is everywhere at all time throughout eternity. He's here right now. He's in India right now. He's in Africa right now. You know the moon? He's there. You know the back of the end of the sun that you can't see? He's there. By the way, he's just behind you. Don't move. So he's everywhere. He's like that. But there are times that God wants us to know that he's personally with us. And he wants us to experience that. He wants us to know that right now he is closer than a brother. Do you remember that? One who sticketh closer than a brother. That was A.V., wasn't it? Now, in the Old Testament view of a brother, there was no closer relationship than two brothers. So what they were saying, not only was it knowing that, but it was also felt. Silas, please stand. Come here, Silas. I want you to imagine, we, you have to come up here, I know this. I want you to imagine, I want you to imagine, I know this is embarrassing for you, but I, know, I want you to imagine that you are my Old Testament brother. I know we are brothers in the Lord. Okay. Now, what you, I want you to show. Now, I want, look, I'm over here. This is the omnipresence of God. The omnipresence of God is that I know Silas is my brother. Silas, you're my brother. Okay. Now then, I, I know this is embarrassing. I am, I am now going to greet you Old Testament style. I, af- I apologize for offending you, but you are going to know that I am with you. Okay. So the first thing I'm going to do is that I'm going to kiss you. <laughs> All right? So I'm going to come up here, you see. In Old Testament style, I'm going to... <coughs> one. Now, he knew that I kissed him. Because even in that Indian flesh, he went red. <laughs> so that's one. Here's the second one. Right? We're going to hold each other. Because we are brothers. And you're going to tap the back. Tap the back. Be man. That's okay. There we go. Thank, thank you, Silas. So, so there's the. So God is designing us to know the touch, the personal touch of the Lord in our lives, not just the omnipresent, the kiss of the Lord, the hug of the Lord. I know God is with me. I, you know that I hate carols. So just to help my sanctification. May I quote a carol to you? Away in a manger. Be near me, Lord Jesus, I ask you to stay close by me forever and love me, I pray. We won't do bless all the dear. No. But it's just, you know, I, it's that sort of thing. It's that closeness because he wants you to know that sense of nearness. The psalmists themselves give a hint of this. Psalm 23, you can see this uh, in verses 2 and 3. Remember this. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me down to lie in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his own name's sake. All of those things are the omnipresence of God. Why? The Lord. I shall not want. He makes me whatever. Then, what do we do? We move into the intensity part. The part where he seems to go through difficult times. And he says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he changes the tense and he says, you. What is that? The psalmist suddenly has known God as the, he's the great shepherd. He's known him as that, that sort of thing, takes him to... And now, when he's going through, he knows, you are with me. Your rod and your staff, you'll comfort me. It's almost as if the psalmist knew again, the Lord came near. The Lord came near to me. And so, 
He rehearses these truths to, to stroke his faith. Do you rehearse these truths to stroke your faith in the midst of traumatic circumstances? Look at the traumatic circumstances. Genesis chapter 1. God divides the land from the sea. And here we see the land, even the highest land, thrown back into the sea. We will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and its mountains tremble at its swelling. This is apocalyptic. It's turned upside down. The psalmist is actually saying in verse 2 and 3, when the two most immutable, unshakable things that we can think about in the natural order, the earth under our feet, the mountains, the grand majestic mountains, whether you think of Snowden or the Alps or Everest or whatever you think about, when these things are hurled to the bottom of the, o- of the ocean, the natural order is turned upside down, that you need to know that you have a God that cannot be shaken. That your God is bigger than even the world's greatest event. You know, years ago, I could never understand the Rocky movies because they were always the same. Basically, he, he looks ugly from the start. He looks more ugly as he's been, And in the 11th hour, he wins, apart from the final one where he just, he just dies and he, or he, he loses. But the one that I remember is the one with Apollo Creed. Do you remember that one? Apollo Creed? And I I don't know whether you've seen this one, but what happens is it all starts off okay, and then the usual thing with the Rocky films is then for about ten rounds, he gets slowly battered to a pulp, doesn't he? And he, he can't get up, and you want to throw the towel in for him. But you know that the 15th round's coming, don't you? Because we all watch the film. And I don't know whether you think like me, but he, he goes to his, and he's, and he's, and he's well, the coach or whatever, the trainer, he goes to him, how are you doing? What a stupid question to ask him. I'm being beaten to a pulp. How do you think I'm doing? So Rocky answers, it ain't bad. And you think, it ain't bad? Look at the state of you, man. You know, the eyes like this, the mouth has gone like this. You know, he can't walk. They've dragged him. There's blood everywhere. And he says, it ain't bad. What do you think the psalmist is saying in verses 2 and 3? The world's gone crazy. And he's saying, it ain't bad. How can he say it ain't bad? Well, not because, he's like, not because he's like Rocky. He's not resilient and stupid. But because he serves a God whose power is infinitely greater than all the forces in this world combined. And he knows this. He knows that whatever happens in this world, his God is stronger. That's the thing. And many of us may... In our times, whether in this nation or other nations, come across these cataclysmic events. If we're watching them, some of us may even, in our time, go through them. Do you know that your God is stronger? Do you know that your God is mightier? Do you know that he actually is the only unmovable thing in this earth? That the mountains will shake and the earth will be like it said here. But the God that we serve is unmovable. He's the one that we can run to. I want to suggest, Christians, that we have no idea actually what we're dealing with when we're dealing with God. Uh, That's just upset a few. How do I know this? I know this through films. Have you ever watched... A disaster film about the earth. There's one a year, isn't there? It's usually a flood through New York, but it's something like that. It's always America that gets hit. For, it's an asteroid coming in over here. It's, it's something that's going to hit us and everything goes all to pieces. And there's usually a romance it somewhere. And will they ever live happy ever after? Because the asteroid is plummeting towards us. The sun has broken up into nine. We have to fire rockets at it. All sorts of things. It's ice ages. We burn up and all this sort of stuff stuff 
It's really interesting that, you know, the, what we do is that every film is we will be reduced to mush. And we know all about this because we've seen it on all sorts of different films and we still flood to it. How do I know that we don't know what we're dealing with? Because you never have a film at the end of it that God says, I'm bigger than this. There's, n- there's never a film that comes and said, you see that? I can remake that in a second. I can reform that Why? by a word. And it's, in, it's so important that you remember in times of trouble who is on your side, how big he is, what he can do, what he is like. Else what you do is you get overwhelmed with what's coming. Now if God made it, he can turn it around. Actually, it's also in the Bible. Hebrews 12, verse 26. His voice shook the earth. But now he's, he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but the heaven. This expression, yet once more, sort of denotes things that can't be shaken. Therefore, since we have a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The psalmist knows that. Do you know that? Is he the, is he the stabling thing in your experience? Is he mightier than, greater than, or are all the things that come to you big, huge, massive, big problems? Or is he, does he define the problem? Does he shape the way that you think? Does he form the way that you speak? Does he affect the way that you worship? Our God is a consuming fire. Is that your understanding of God as you go through life and face? We have the only thing in this world that cannot be shaken. God, he cannot be shaken. And he chose you. And called you into his kingdom so that you might experience some of the unshakableness in your life. Isn't that wonderful? He brought you in so that you wouldn't be shaken. So the things that people you hear about and read about where people despair and they go, we don't know how we're ever going to get over this. That you might say, no, I know something greater. So we move to uh, verses... Four to seven. And the psalmist again reminds us of God's power to protect us about anything. And he first does it by showing to us two things that seem uh, contradictory. First, there is the picture in verses four and five of a very serene city, the city of God. But then when you look at verses five to seven, you realize that this city is under siege. The armies of the enemies are surrounding the city. And yet the psalmist has given us a picture of God's power to protect us against anything by showing us that you can have a serene city even when your enemies are attacking you. Can you hear that? Do you hear that? You can have a serene city even when you are being attacked. It's the promise of God. And it's another picture of the challenges facing the people of God in this fallen world. A city engulfed by innumerable horde of enemies. And we learn that when we're surrounded by enemies, here it is, we are as secure as if we are singing praises to Jesus in heaven itself. You cannot be more secure or less secure than you are right now. You are seated in heavenly places with him in Christ Jesus. That's the fact. It isn't that I'm a bit wobbly on earth and then I get to heaven and I will be safe. No, you are in the kingdom of God. You've been brought out of darkness into light. You are on God's side. God is for you, not not against you. You are as safe now as you will ever be. Hallelujah. It is wonderful. That's why we sing, you know, God is for us. Who can be? We are more than conquerors. It's wonderful stuff. So let's look at the scene change then. Verses 4 and 7. 
we have a description of the city of God. The picture of the city of God is a picture of God's people that will reoccur throughout the Psalms. Notice this. The enemy is outside, but the city is placed by a river. The enemy's there, but you can know life. You can, you can know life. You can be exhilarated. But notice the type of life that you can experience. The enemies are still there, but the city is made glad by, by, in the, by the river. So not only have you got the full force of the enemies, you've got a load of people over here having a laugh and enjoying themselves. And you think, that's mad. No, that's the way that you're designed to be. The enemies are pressing in. And such is your relationship with God. Such is your experience of God that you're having a laugh. It's, it's, it can be, it sounds awful, but it can be great fun. That's what the Bible says. Not only is it great fun and it's by the river, but look at it. The dwelling place of the Most High is in her. What a wonderful statement. Here's the enemies, here's us, experiencing life, gladness, and knowing the presence of God. That's why I said right at the very beginning, we're designed to know the presence of God in extreme circumstances. This is what God wants for us. Not only is this a picture of us as individuals, but this is a glorious picture of the church. The church, full of life full of gladness, the presence of God with her. That's what the church is all about. That's what we should be gathering to and aiming for. But verse 5 is a reality check because this city is under siege for a long time. Have you felt that? Yeah. But this city is going to hold. She's not going to be moved. And notice the word, it takes you back to verses 2 and 3. The, the, the picture in, the, in verses 2 and 3 is the whole world is moving and the picture here is the city is not moved. Why? Why? The city's not going to be moved because God is with them. You don't need to be moved emotionally. You don't need to be moved intellectually. You don't need to be moved throughout what you're going through. Why? Because God is with you. God is with you. God, God is for you. God will, it says here, God will help her and God will help her soon. He will help her at the break of day, the dawn of day. And that's the reason. There is no reason on earth why you can't be actually having your greatest experience in God in the most difficult of circumstances. It's what we were designed to do. That's what demonstrates the gospel, shows who God is, and shows that we are actually the people of God. The enemies of the city must have looked at this. What are these people doing? They were lamping things over big rocks, running up with big ladders, climbing up, and this lot are having a party. That's exactly right. If it's tough, throw a party. Worship God. Enjoy him. Because what comes is that you get a perspective by it. Verse 6. Look at this. Here's the frustration. The nations rage. Of course they're going to rage. Because that's not the way you fight, is it? You don't fight with gladness and life and, and enjoyment. No, that's not right. But it's what happens. They're raging. They're thinking, what on earth is going on here? Here's the good thing. The enemy falls when you're glad. That's the thing. The enemy falls when you're glad. The enemy doesn't know what to do. That's why we say to you time and time again, you know, if it's tough, get into the Word. When it's tough, get into worship. When it's tough, press into God. Why? Because the enemy just doesn't know what to do. He just rages. That's not fair. And then he says, the kingdoms totter. And his voice, uh, and, uh, at his voice, the earth melts. God speaks. And the rebellion and the siege are nothing. Isn't it wonderful how powerful God's voice is? May I quote a hymn, Martin Luther. We won't sing this afterwards, Phil, you're all right. There's a hymn that Martin Luther wrote. It's a bit quaint, but it's wonderful. It's called, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And it catches this truth. This is verse 3. And though this world, with devils filled, should threaten to undo us, 
We will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness, grim, we tremble for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is, is sure. One little word shall fell him. Last verse. That word above the earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who will sideth. Let goods and kindreds go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth still abideth. His kingdom is forever. His kingdom is forever. He spoke the world into being church. There was nothing. And by the same power, he can speak our enemies into nothing. Look at the defiance in verse 7, the confidence. It's there to get into our being. God, he's the God of armies, the God of hosts. Does it mean that he's got angels, troops or stars? I don't know. I haven't got a clue. I don't think God minds particularly the way that he demolishes his enemies. He can use whatever resources he likes. And sometimes, you know, we get a little bit, well, will this be an angelic army? Or will it be, what, what will, forget that. Just know that God can deal with it. But doesn't it remind you so much here of Elisha? And uh, Elisha had got his servant, remember that? And uh, there, was a, there was a war going on and the war looked like that, that uh, they were losing. And Elisha's uh, servant is terrified. He comes back to Elisha and he says, what on earth are we going to do? How many times have you uttered that statement? What on earth are we going to do? And Elisha says this to him, those that are with us are more than those who are against us or with them. And suddenly his eyes are opened. And he suddenly sees hills full of horses and chariots of fire. And here's the picture again. We have the God of armies on our side. Eternal armies, legions of angels are on our side. There is not an army on earth. There is not the sums of the army on earth that can beat the captain of our faith. We have the army of heaven on our side with an angelic force that's still yet to be experienced and and understood. This is what is on our side. When we see Jesus born and the angels visit uh, the shepherds, we just get a little window when we see all heaven open and an angelic voice visiting. And we think, we are not alone. You are not alone. You were never designed to be alone. Not only have you got the church with you, you've got God with you, and you've got the armies of God with you. It is wonderful. Those that are with us are more than those that are with them. Is that your attitude? He doesn't stop there. He's the God who made promises to us. He's the God of Jacob. He's the God of covenant. He's the God who will fulfill what he said. He will do it. (laughs) This is wonderful. I just find this so exciting that he... What he has promised, he will do. If it's in the Bible, he will do it. And he will do it for you. It is as simple as that. Why do you not believe the Bible? That's part of the battle. Part of it is to do with unbelief. That's why we're saying take back things like God is our refuge and strength. No, even though this is heaven, I know you are my refuge. I know you are my strength. I know you're an ever-present help. Take truth back to him. Don't take lies. It's why the hymn writers, you know, sometimes we think, hey, that good hymn, that. Why did the hymn writer write some of the things that they did? They wrote some of the things because they experienced them. And the hymn writer says this, in glorious things of thee are spoken, with salvation's walls surrounded, thou may smilest on all thy foes. We sing it enough, don't we? You may look at your enemy and go, not much to you, wimp. However big it is. Why is that? The God of armies is with me. You can smile. 
Sometimes it's worth a smile in a difficulty. Do crack the lips every now and again and just have a laugh. Why? Because look who is on your side. The Lord of hosts, the God of armies, the God of promises, the God of Jacob. Nothing, nothing but nothing can compare to this. How about this then? We rest on thee, our shield and our defender. Here's <laughs> an old one. It is well with my soul. Apart from this morning when things have gone so wrong. I always say this. I can always tell whether it's going to be a good day or a bad day according to how many times I drop the, shower, the soap in the shower. Three times, and the answer is, go back to bed. <laughs> this is not the experience of the, of the hymn writer who said this, even in the midst of trouble, it is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. How about this one? Be still, my soul. The Lord is on my side. Are these your battle cries? Are these the things that you face your enemies with? Is this what you do when you get up in the morning? The Lord is on my side. Let's try and bring this to a conclusion. They wrote this because they were hymns of confidence that they knew it. Remember what the battlefield is going to look like when God is done. Verses 8 to 11. This is the final picture, a shorter picture, just to let you off. The picture is a future picture. The battle is over, and this picture is, uh, rem- is there to remind us of God's power to protect against anything by showing that he will have the ultimate victory. His enemies and his forces will not be victorious over him. It's a picture of the desolation of all gods and therefore our enemies. And at this point we remember, we probably need to re-remember, what the battlefield is going to look like when God is done. These, these are the things that in their day would have been of great force. They would have been treated uh, with awesome respect. But now they are shattered. They are broken. They are burned. The longbow was feared. It was a feared thing. The chariot was feared. The spear was feared. Now, they are absolutely nothing. Now, I just want to just speak to you, if I can, because I think that as Christians, sometimes we can be too occupied with the world's bow, spear and chariot. We can do this. In fact, sometimes... We can comment more about the world's bow, spear and chariot than actually we do about God. We can wax lyrical about it. We can say that the world's spear, the world's chariot and the world's bow are becoming stronger. And we say this, don't we? We say, this law has come. What are we going to do about this law? And we say we can no longer do these things. We can no longer say that we, we are Christian. It's pressing in. We might not be able to meet. as we And we get ourselves into this sort of way of thinking. We, are, we even talk about, you know, it won't be too long before people will tell us how to think. And, you know, these sort of things. People will tell us how to behave. And we gather and we talk about this for endless hours, waxing lyrical on the fact that the enemy is pressing in and we are in real trouble. In fact, we just think, you know, what will church look like in one year, two years, three years? How will it be? Will Nigel be arrested? Yeah, you all go. Yeah, do all that sort of stuff because he's doing this sort of thing. What will it be? We won't be able to give a leaflet out on the streets. And we do it. Oh, well, we can't, we can't, we can't, we can't. It's bad, 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 bad. Don't want to live here. Well, we, and we look for things. Maybe we should emigrate to Australia. They can still preach in the streets there. Or maybe we should all go and live on an island all on our own where we could buy it for ourselves and live upon it. We can be, all be Christian community loving one another and the island. So we're away from those horrible people called the world because they are doing it on purpose. The government, they make up rules and it's on purpose, you know. It is anti-Christian. Do that, they do. 
My neighbour despises me because I'm a Christian. I'm not, I can't, I'm not allowed to think anymore. Think? No, I can't think. It's impossible. If I say what I think, I'd get a sack. They'd sack me. Wouldn't be able to do that. And we go on and on and on. So you're all looking at me and you're all smiling because I know that you've all done it. And I know that over coffee, you will do it again. You will all complain. Let me just say this to you. Look here at the enemy. This is not naivety or unreality. This is truth. This will happen. Verses 8 to 12 have the same function as the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation gives us the end before it has come to remind us of the certainty of the victory of Jesus Christ. The whole point of the book of Revelation is this. We win. That's the idea. Read Revelation. What is Revelation about? We win. <laughs> you know, so you can laugh. You know, make up a law, but we win. You can do what you want. Stop me preaching on the streets. Ha <laughs> ha, we win. It doesn't make any difference. Stop me in prison. We still win. Do what you like. We win. We are on the winning side. That's the, that's the best of it. It's a picture, you see. This is to stroke your hope in the face of difficulty. Difficulty. Ha ha, we win. It's just like that. This is tough. We win. You just got to laugh at it. You cannot lose this battle. You are on the victory side. Onward, Christian soldiers marching as to what? War. Why are you mar- We win. It's just this. You cannot lose. It's fantastic. Oh, thank you, Phil. <laughs> what is Revelation about? God's triumph, Jesus will return, and on his thigh will be king of kings. That's a bit like pantomime, that wasn't it? <laughs> on his thigh will be king of kings and lord of lords. King of who? King of all the kings and lord of all the lords. Let the lords make their rules. Let the kings say what they think. We're the king of kings and lord of lords. On our side, we win. And we must look to the king of kings when he comes. And out of apparent tragedy, he creates this final and ultimate victory. Look at the things that look tragedy in the Bible. What about the Red Sea? The mightiest army is there. There was no greater army at that time than the army of Egypt. And God goes, we win. (laughs) We win. And, they, and there's Israel, they have not got one piece of armory amongst them. These were a slave people. Behind them is the armory of heavens. And God said, they win. <laughs> and he just goes, who's on our side then? Um, let me think. Seas. Yeah. That will get rid of them. Because seas are on my side. <laughs> and he just does this. Think of the cross. Who was the mightiest empire of its day? It was the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire had gone through the Mediterranean basin. It had conquered almost everything with fear. It had taken people from all tribes and nations. It had brought them into their own army. They were fighting for them. It was on the advance and on the advance, except everywhere in this little place called Jerusalem. Because they thought that they could quash a little sort of thing that was going on. They could do something. They could get rid of this one person by nailing him to a cross. Let's get rid of him, shove him out the way and carry on. No, after three days, he rose again. Why? Because we win. It is always we win. It is never we lose. It is always we win. Sounds like a game that Rupert and Fleur are playing, doesn't it? (laughs) And it's like that. And and that's the end. But God will also turn to the ultimate victory. The ultimate victory is at the end. The final complete victory. And here's the picture of the aftermath of of God's judgment of his enemies. His war of his enemies. He makes to cease the ends of the earth. Not through negotiation or diplomacy, but through obliterating everyone in his way. God speaks. God speaks to the opposition. Look at this very carefully in verse 10. 
I want you to look at it carefully because you've often perceived this in a way that I, I perceived it. Verse 10, he looks at his enemies and he says, Be still and know that I am God. Now I know that the way that you think this, because you and I have done this the same, we've sort of, we've done, Be still and know that I am God. I'm coming, Silas. (laughs) Let me just say, it is great comfort, but it is unbiblical to use that in this context. Be still, Rupert, and know that the Lord is your God. This is not true. This is the enemies. The enemies rise and they bring up their chariots, their spears and their armies and they stand proud and the Lord says, be still and know that I am God. It's actually an aggressive thing. He comes and he says it. He says this to his enemies. Silence, I will reign. He says this to them. Knock it off. And they knock it off. And then he says, why? Because I will be exalted in all the earth. That's the verse. Please don't sing it like that again. Don't do that, Phil. It's just wrong. What are we doing? This is, we ought to sing this. It ought to be like that. Be still and know that I am God, enemy. It's what God's doing here. I will be exalted. Our God will be exalted in all the earth. You know, the the Bible says this, the fool says in his heart there is no God. The fool says this. Why? We can see this be still thing, can't we? You can see it with Jesus. Jesus stands in front of the storm and the disciples. What does he say to to the storm? He says, be still and know that I am God. The storm goes. This is the God in whom we serve. We serve this God. We win. This is the God in whom we go. Look at this. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Whether they do that willingly or not, they will. This city will have no need of sun or moon to shine for the glory of God will be its light and its lamp will be the Lamb and we will live forever. So what I want to urge you this morning to write the reign of Christ over every area of your life. The last enemy is defeated. The victory is won. The church is redeemed. The Lord Jesus Christ is exalted. He will, he will turn to the Father and bow his head eventually with it all completed, with millions upon millions of people ushered into a new heaven and an earth with glorious bodies to worship the Lamb. And then comes the end. No, not ever. This is the beginning This is not the end. You are not in the end time struggling. No, the beginning is coming of eternal life where we will no longer live like this, when we will live in complete and utter victory. We are on the winning side. Amen? Amen.